Good morning, guys. It has been a joy to worship with you this morning. I missed you all last week, and uh, it's great to be back. So do me a favor, get your Bible. I'll turn with you to James chapter 2, and uh, we're going to look at the first 13 verses there this morning. And we are, like I said, meditating our way through... Um, the book of James, and so uh, if you have, if you don't have a Bible, uh, Lord willing, there's one in a chair in front of you, and uh, if you don't own a Bible, do me a favor, take that one with you, okay? We would love for you to have a copy uh, of the Word of God, especially if you will read it on a regular basis, it will genuinely change your life, and we would love for you to have that and to read that. And a couple quick announcements uh, while you're kind of getting all that out, get your note sheet out, you can take notes on the app as well. And so while you're kind of getting all that ready, a quick, couple quick announcements. First of all, be praying. We have a team uh, that's in Puerto Rico right now, kind of finishing up some rebuilding of some houses and things that they worked on last year, uh, also working with Hunger Corps. And so they are there now, and actually I'll be joining them at the back end of the week, so I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, and so I'm, I've tried to just get in when I actually wouldn't do any physical labor, because I'll be of no help whatsoever. But yeah, so looking forward to them and be praying for them now. And so... And kind of along with that, it's not really an announcement, just a reminder to let you guys know. Um, so our teaching team, uh, the pastors from our four campuses and then some of the men that teach uh, when we're out uh, are going to be going away on a preaching retreat this afternoon just for two nights and be praying and planning our sermon calendars coming up. And, and uh, so you can be praying for us. We're really looking forward to spending a little extra time with one another and with the Lord uh, to think and pray about where we're going to go as a church preaching our way through the scriptures. So you can be in prayer for that. Okay, secondly, outdoor movie night, June 17th. We, that is at our church plant. Dear, well, it's not ours. It's a church plant that we planted, Church Park. Uh, Deer Park Fellowship, and I think a lot of you know where that is. If not, you can Google that, but 7.30, outdoor movie for you and your family. It'll be family-friendly. It's going to be great, so come on out for that. And then finally, this weekend is the food pantry here at the Yorktown campus. So if you want to be a part of that, two ways that you can be involved. You can come out Friday night and help set up and get it ready, and then you can come out Saturday and help give the food out. And if you've never done that, man, I really want to encourage you to do it. It's super easy. Show up. There's a place for you to get involved. You can bring your family, you can bring your small group. It really, really, really is a great spot to be involved. So, and so, yeah, just jump on in. So here we go, James chapter 2. Uh, man, just James is going to challenge us this morning uh, with the sin of partiality, that the kinds of judgments that we are to make uh, as Christians are different than the judgments of the world. And uh, we are not to be judging by appearances. Uh, and so, and so that is the sin of partiality. And James challenges this church, and uh, the ch- and I think it's going to challenge us this morning. Speaking of appearances, uh, I want to read you a story. So this comes with great fear and trepidation as a pastor. When you read a long story, uh, people tune out. So don't tune out. All right, give me your attention. Uh, this is the John Blanchard story. So this is an old story from around the World War II era. And uh, so here it is. John Blanchard stood up from a bi- the bench. He straightened his army uniform and he studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't. She was the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. 
The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and an insightful mind. And so in the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name. Her name was Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, he located her address. I know you young people find this hard to believe. There was a day that was hard to do, okay? So with time and effort, he located his address. She lived in New York City, and he wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II, and during the next year and month, he, the two grew to know each other through the mail. With each letter, there was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph. Typical dude. That's my notes, okay? Typical dude. But she refused, and she felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting, 7 p.m., Grand Central Station, New York. She wrote, you'll recognize me by the red rose that I'll be wearing on my lapel. I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you what happened next. He said, a young woman came towards me, her figure long and slim, her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears, and her eyes were blue as flowers. Her lips and her chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips, and she said, going my way, sailor? Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Miss Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under her worn hat. She was more than plump. Her thick-ankled feet thrust into her low-heeled shoes, the girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm, kindly twinkle, and I did not hesitate. I, my finger gripped the small worn blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must forever be grateful. So I squared my shoulders and I saluted and I held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I said, I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad that you could meet me. May I take you out for dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is all about, son, she answered, but that young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you that she's waiting in the big restaurant across the street she said it was some kind of test. <laughs> Way to go, John, right? Don't judge by appearances. Uh, this morning, we're picking up in James, and um, 
James gives us, I think, in the beginning of this letter, four tests of what it means to be a Christian, right? And so as we're kind of holding up the mirror of what it looks like to be transformed by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus, James gives four tests. And we've kind of started this by reminding the book of James is kind of like the New Testament Proverbs. It's very practical in wisdom and insight. The first test is is a true Christian will endure trials, right? We'll count it all joy and we'll persevere through trials and, and know that God is in the middle of something, working things out for his glory. The second test uh, is for of a genuine faith of a Christian is that they overcome temptation and we learn to battle. We talked about how do we battle our own sinful temptations. And then last week we learned about some very practical wisdom that Pastor Andrew brought us out of James about how what it looks like to put word and faith together, right? We don't, not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word. And that looks like, you know, being slow to speak and quick to listen, slow to anger, you know, taking care of Ukrainian refugees, which you guys have done, right? And we're doing as a church and, and, and taking care of the least of these. And now today we're going to look at the, uh, another test of genuine Christianity is that point number one, Christians do not judge by appearance, okay? James calls this the sin of partiality. When we make judgments based on a first glance appearance, James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I, I love that addition, by the way. The Lord of glory, because for me, uh, it, it's, it's like James kind of doubling down on this command, right? Like, hey, we're going to give an account of what we know about God and how we respond to the gospel. And so do this. Don't show partiality because you're, you're in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, he's the Lord of glory. He's awesome, right? And so we worship the Lord by not living in such a way as we showing partiality. Now, a lot of times this verse can be pulled out of context, and I think we have to see this verse in the context of the scriptures, right? Because the idea here is, is showing favoritism. We don't want to show, as believers, we don't show favoritism in our judgments. The Bible does not teach that we make no judgments. Uh, so, in other words, James is saying we're not showing favoritism based on things like appearance, like race and socioeconomic class or gender. But the Bible does give us some instruction on how, as Christians, sorry, how as Christians, we are to make judgments. So he's not just talking about appearances here, right? And in fact, the Bible actually gives us some instruction on how we should dress outward appearance when we come to corporate worship. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, listen, when we dress, when we come to corporate worship, we are to dress in such a way that we are not drawing undue attention to ourselves. The point of corporate worship is to gather and give attention to Christ. And when we gather, we should not be dressed in such a way that people go, wow, look at that, right? And we should be making sure that the attention is focused on Christ. This passage is also not teaching that there's no place for giving honor. 
There is a place for honor. The scriptures actually tell us there are places to give honor. We're to honor the elderly. Leviticus 19, right? As, as our families age. We're to honor our parents, young people. And as we grow older and we take care of aging parents, we're to honor our parents. I had a great opportunity this weekend. Friday and Saturday, I drove up to Baltimore. And my dad did a great job working with my sister organizing a, a surprise party for my mom who turned 75, and it was just simple, and it was catered, and we, we just sat around the table and just honored her, and we all, kids and grandkids, three her three kids, all raising their families in the Lord and honoring the seeds of faith that my mom planted in us. It was really amazing. We are to honor people for the right things. We're to honor spirit. We're to honor our governing authorities. Romans 8, 13 tells us to do that. We're to honor children. Jesus said, this, this is the kingdom. Let the little children come unto me. This is the kingdom of heaven. We're to honor children. This, by, this passage does not teach us that we are not to pass judgments. We are to make biblical, holy, righteous, impartial judgments. I think one of the most misquoted verses in our current culture right now is Matthew 7, 1. As soon as I say it, a lot of you will go, oh yeah, right? In Matthew 7, 1, Jesus said, judge not, lest, what? Lest you be judged. And so what happens is that verse gets pulled out of context, and then it's quoted at us Christians and say, the Bible, didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest you be judged? And then it's followed up with a lifestyle that the Bible has said is immoral or sinful. And as Christians, we don't want you on the sinful path, because the Bible is very clear about the path of sin. The wages of sin is what? Yeah, we don't want you on the path of death, we want you on the path of life. We are to make biblical, holy, righteous judgments that are applied to all people without partiality, okay? And so, and so let's look at, actually, Jesus gives a whole, like, listen, if we were to eliminate judgment completely, we should get rid of the U.S. judicial system, and everybody just run around and do what's right in their own eyes. We're heading that way anyway, right? It's complete chaos. Oh, Jesus said this, Matthew 1. You can't just rip one verse out of context. Matthew 7, verse 1. Here it is, ready? Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Now he gives some commentary on this so we know what he's saying. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. In other words... You are going to be judged by the same judgments that you use on others. This is exactly what James is saying. James is saying when we judge, it is without partiality in the church. Some biblical judgments that I would suggest that we can and should make. We're to judge people by their actions, by their fruits, the Bible says, right? Jesus said this in Matthew 7, right? Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their what, church? Oh, you guys are asleep. Here we go. I know it's 11.30 now, and we're getting tired. Actually, it's 11.56, okay? Uh, you will recognize them by their what, church? By their fruits, right? Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits, right? Jesus also teaches, what comes out of our mouth comes from where? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So out of the abundance of things you're thinking about and dwelling on, the mouth speaks. So we can make judgments about the things that you say and the things that you do. We're also supposed to make sure that when someone is accused of something, we slow down and get two or three witnesses. In Matthew chapter 18, church discipline, what, what does Jesus teach? Well, you, if you, someone, you accuse someone of something, you go sit down one-on-one with them. If the testimony can't be verified, then you bring two or three. First Timothy, Paul says you don't bring an accusation against a church leader unless there's two or three witnesses. This is a very important piece to casting good, biblical, righteous, and holy, impartial judgments. Sometimes it requires that we take a step back, we slow down, and we collect the proper information. Amen, anybody? Because here's what's happening in our culture. An eight-second video gets posted all over the media And for me, as the pastor of a large church, by the end of the day, I'm hearing the rumblings of, if I don't come out and make a statement by the end of the day, I'm now part of the problem and not part of the solution, right? You part, and I'm like, wait wait a minute, like, can I just take some time to get a little more information first, right? There's wisdom in that, that we make sure that we know, because what are we ultimately after? We're not ultimately after making a judgment, we're ultimately after the truth. Right? We have to get to the truth of a situation. Number three, when we make judgments, our judgments are to be the same standard for all people, regardless of socioeconomic class, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of appearances, of how we want to make a quick judgment. They're to be the same standard for all people. And so we judge by fruit, and we judge by the word of God. But here's the number four, you ready? We need to be slow to judge motive. Everybody hear me on that? We need to, so we can judge works and we can judge actions and we can, can we judge words. We need to be slow to judge motive. First Samuel 16, right? Only God sees the heart. And so it's not always up to me or us to judge motive. All I can do is judge action, right? In fact, even in our own judicial system, there's varying degrees of charges for murder, and all three degrees have to do with intent. And even our own judicial system understands it's not always easy to know intention, right? And so there's first, second, or third, or manslaughter is what the third one's called sometimes, depending on the state. But, you know, we have to slow down and say it's not always up to us to to initially put on a, a judgment in ism. It's this, right? And be slow to judge motive. Now, James gives so as Christians, we are to judge impartially, use the same standard for all people. We are not, we are, and so now James gives a practical example. Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit down at my feet. You have not then made distinctions among yourselves and become, and I really like what he says here, 
judges with evil thoughts. He doesn't say that you're evil for judging, but you become judges with evil thoughts. Now, what James is addressing, he's addressing a group of people here that are um, mostly Jewish converts, and most of them were impoverished. And in early New Testament churches, and you can see this very clearly in the church, uh, the letter to the churches in Asia Minor out of Revelation 2, that if you became a Christian, it wasn't uncommon for you to lose your job because you stood for Christ, okay? And by the way, like you guys as followers of Jesus who take the Bible seriously here at Coastal Church, like I know you're feeling the pressure in this current culture to take a stand for what is righteous and holy and true that it might even touch your job, okay? My brother-in-law, I got to visit with this week, he's a high-level leader and a large business and you know it's pride month and he's a moral man and he thinks that homosexuality is sin and and he's trying to figure out how to navigate large company wokeness with his journey with jesus you know and i know i see a lot of your heads nodding because you're doing that in the world right now trying to figure this out like how do i honor christ honor my boss provide for my family and so in this New Testament church, some of these people were poor because they became followers of Jesus. They had to lose, lose their job. And so this is an illustration that James gives. It's not the only illustration that would be showing partiality, but this is an illustration. He's saying to this church, as soon as someone comes in that's rich, you're giving them the best seat of honor in the church, Right? And so number three, as Christians, we must remember that God often chooses using the opposite standard of the world, right? What the world would say is worthy of honor is oftentimes very different than what the scripture says that we should honor, right? James 2, 5, and 7. So this is what James says to these people that are honoring the wealthy. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So he's promising reward here in verse 5, which has promised to those who love him, but you, you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? What James is saying here, James is not saying that all rich people have offended poor people. What James is saying is, in this particular setting, there's some wealthy people that have dishonored some of the members of this church in the community by dragging them to court and winning, you know, uh, winning arguments against them, taking their money, or just because they're rich, they're not even believers. And so you're honoring them, and by doing that, as non-Christians, you're in your church setting, you're blaspheming the name of God. These were wealthy people using the courts to oppress the poor, which is clearly an injustice, but now they're showing up in the church and honoring them in the church. And James is like, what in the world are you doing? Have you forgotten that God very often uses uh, the le- what, what Matthew calls the least of these? God has a tender spot for those that the culture casts out as lower than the rest of the people, right? 
And so he talks about the least of these. And God has always had a tender spot, whether it's for women or children or various races or babies in the womb or women or men that are being trafficked. At the end of the day, the church is to have a heart of God that loves all people, maybe even especially those that the world rejects. Amen? And one of the, you guys with me? Amen? Man, we have to have a tender spot for what the world would say, man, they're the least of these. One of the things that's great about the gospel is the gospel attacks our heart posture. So in other words, if you're full of pride and you think, man, God somehow needs me, so, so that his kingdom with my riches or my, my brilliance or my talent or my good looks or whatever, you know, God needs me. The gospel humbles us and reminds us, man, God does not need any of us for the kingdom to go forward, amen? And so it humbles us. If you're sitting here this morning, you're like, well, I'm so beaten up by my past and my sin and my shame that I have no value to the kingdom, and your heart posture is one of just constant shame, then the gospel reminds us that God loves you so much in Christ that he sent his one and only son to die for you. You're invaluable to God. The tensions of the gospel are not middle ground. The tensions of the gospel are to stretch us as far as possible in opposite directions. You're far worse than you ever imagined, and you're far more loved than you ever dared dream. That really is the gospel message, right? And so we preach to our heart, depending on which side our heart, if we're leaning into pride, we need to remind ourselves we need to be humble. And if we're leaning into, I'm, you know, worse than worm sweat, uh, whatever, that's pretty bad. And so, like, then I'm loved in the gospel of Christ deeply. Paul reminds the Corinthian church this in 1 Corinthians 26 when he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, God chose you to be part of his family, probably because you have far less ability than you think you really have. Amen? Like, it, there's a humility piece as we follow God. And so, therefore, as Christians, man, we have no business showing favoritism because when we do that, what James says next, James pivots here pretty hard. And it's, it, it's easy to think, like, where's James going with this? And I hope to help you understand why James pivots here and why this ties back into showing favoritism, okay? Because when we show favoritism, it shows that we don't know the character of God, which is point number four. We break the royal law. So now let me pause here and just kind of give you a little framework. To, and when I'm in the next few minutes, as I talk about the law of God, um, I want you to have in your mind, it's, it's much more than this, but I want you to have in mind the Ten Commandments, okay? The Ten Commandments I would hold this morning as they are the character of God. We're to read the Ten Commandments and recognize that that is the character of God. That's what he expects of us, and I don't keep 
the law of God perfectly, and therefore what I deserve is the wrath of God, and that's why I need the gospel of Jesus to save me from God's wrath and gift me the righteousness that I can't keep by keeping the law of God, okay? So let's talk about when, why when we show favoritism, we actually don't even know the God of the Bible very well, okay? So here it is, James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which is this, you should love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So let's sum up the royal law. Letter A, sum up the royal law. The royal, the royal law, in its sum, is love. We're to love God and love our neighbors. That's what Jesus said in, in Matthew 22, right? When he was approached and they asked him, 22 verse 36 of Matthew chapter 22, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. And so as Christians, as part of the kingdom of God, this is our law. Jesus summed up the Old Testament by saying we love God, we love others, and one of the ways that we show love to others is not showing partiality. And therefore, what James is saying is, is that we, uh, by, if we're breaking one part of the law, we're breaking the entire law. So letter B. We are to see the law of God as holistic, okay? A proper view of the law of God is to understand it as a whole. And so the, the hearers, the early church, the, Jew, the followers uh, of Judaism at this point, they often saw the law of God as kind of a score sheet. It, in some ways, it's not that much different than how we approach God today. So let's take the Ten Commandments, all right? Uh, a, a person that was in Judaism at the time, they would say, if I'm keeping... Seven out of the ten laws of God, okay, that means I'm only failing in three, and so seven minus three is four, therefore I'm on the plus side of the ledger, right? That's really how they kept score, and so if I'm, I just got to do better than six out of ten, right? Five out of five, you're cutting it close, all right? Four out of ten, you're out, all right? And so that's kind of how they did their measurement, and, and we see this uh, in the story of the rich young ruler, I love how Jesus presents the gospel to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what? Does anybody know? What must I do to what? Inherit eternal life, okay? So this is a really fascinating story. I want you to imagine that um, you, you brought a neighbor to church today. They, as far as you know, they don't know Jesus they're in church, something, the Spirit of God moves here this morning, and they lean over to you and they say, I want to know how to get to heaven. And so after the service, you say, I'll tell you what, after the service, we're going to go up and we're going to talk to Pastor Sean about how to get to heaven. So you bring your neighbor up to Pastor Sean, and they say, hey, Pastor Sean, I'd like to know how to get to heaven. And I look at your neighbor and I say, don't murder, don't commit adultery, um, and honor your parents, and you should be fine. How do y'all? How many of y'all feel comfortable with that explanation of how they'd get to heaven? Anybody? 
nobody in this room should because then I haven't done my job. That's what Jesus did. It's exactly what Jesus did. And so the rich young ruler says what when Jesus says that? Huh? Anybody know? I've done all these. So he's thinking, I must be good. I'm good to go. I follow the rules. And then Jesus says something to him. What does Jesus say? One thing you lack, you need to do one more thing, and you're good. What is it? Anybody know? Sell everything. Is Jesus teaching us that you can buy your way into heaven? No. He's holding up the law, and he says, you think you've kept it all, but the one thing you lack is the first thing. It's love God with all your heart, and you love your wealth more than you love me. And so why does James, in the middle of a sermon on partiality, bring in the law of God? And why does he say, man, you got to keep the royal law? Why does he do that? Because let her see, James is reminding, for us to have unity and impartiality, we all need to remind ourselves that we need a Savior. We need to be reminded that we all fall short of keeping the law of God. We need to be reminded that we all have sinned, and we have sinned against, we've been sinned against, and we have sinned against others. We all need to be reminded that we need to be forgiven of our sin first. I want all your eyes for a minute. Everybody look at me. Ready? Every single one of us in this room has looked at someone and judged them partially. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. It's been a time you've looked at someone and you've made a judgment that was not a fair or biblical judgment. And every single one of us in this room has had someone look at us and make an unfair judgment, right? We've, we've been sinned against with, an, with a partial judgment that wasn't fair. So guess what? It makes every single one of us in this room royal lawbreakers, meaning what all of us deserve. The way that James wants you to see the law of God is as a pane of glass, you don't get to kind of break a pane of glass. It's either kept in whole or it's shattered. There's no in-between. And every single one of us needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so why does James bring the law of God into the church, helping them say you cannot show partiality in the church because there is humility for every single person. If you are going to be saved from the penalty of your sin, you need to recognize I'm a sinner and I bow a knee at the foot of the cross. The biggest problem in this church is me. Some of you are like, finally, Pastor, you finally recognize that. We've been trying to tell you that for years. It's all of us, right? I, there is equality and inclusivity at the foot of the cross. Where everybody who's a Christian says, I'm needy, I'm broken, and I need saving from my sin. And in fact, this is why the New Testament refers to, it uses family language. Because as we bow and knee at the foot of the cross, say, I need saving from my sin. And the only way I can be saved because I'm a lawbreaker is that I have believed in the law keeper, Jesus, who died in my place that I might be gifted his righteousness because I, what I deserve is the wrath of God. Listen. If we go back to the first sin that entered the world, what is at the root of the first sin? Pride. It's did God say. 
I am not submitting to the word of the Lord. It's Pride Month in our country. It's no wonder that we tying the, the word Pride Month to something that the Bible has called sin. Listen, if Christians were to be given a month to be labeled, it would be humility. Christians, it's the opposite of pride. We are to be humbled at the foot of the cross, and that's why there is no place for partiality in the family of God, in God's church. Because we all need a Savior. And therefore, James says, point number five, and I'll wrap this up here pretty quickly. We should live by the law of liberty. The law of liberty. James chapter 2, verse 12. James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. The law of liberty is, in Christ, I now am free not to do whatever I want. James, uh, Romans 6, 1, Paul says, Shall we continue in our sin that grace may abound? God forbid. It's not I'm now free to keep sinning. It's now I am free. The gospel has set me free from sin and shame and bondage. And I am now free to humble myself and love God by freely serving others, by freely forgiving others. I don't have to worry about the harm that you've done to me, the time that you've been partial to me, the time I've been partial to you, guess what? God is the giver of vengeance. I don't have to worry about vengeance. I'll leave it up. I'm free to forgive you. I'm free to serve you. I'm free to self-sacrifice. I'm free to be unconcerned about who gets the credit in the workplace when things go well. I am free because I know that in Christ, this goes back to James chapter 2, where James started this section by saying, it is our God who rewards. There is a heavenly reward. I am free to serve because I know God sees and God rewards. Isn't that great news? And so our freedom is not towards sin, but by serving. And then James ends this section by reminding, we will be judged by the standard that we use. And so, when we understand that we're law violators and we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are admitting that we're law violators. We are asking that God would have mercy on our violation. We have, have by faith, believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a sufficient punishment to pay for my law-breaking. And then, as a lawbreaker, instead of receiving the punishment of the law, by grace through faith, I receive the reward of being a law-keeper because Jesus has kept the law in my stead, and therefore, when I believe in Jesus... His good works of righteousness are credited to my spiritual bank account by grace through faith, and therefore God now sees me as an heir to all the reward that Jesus gets. Isn't that great news? And so James says, 
We need to remind our hearts and minds that we should be merciful because we have indeed received so much mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, the law's punishment. And grace is getting what I don't deserve, law-keeping's reward, which only Christ has done. And so it is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the person and work of Jesus, that we can have both. And a person that has received mercy and grace is a person that must give mercy and grace. Amen, church? And so there's no place inside the church for partiality. There's no place for judgments based on appearance, meaning things like race, gender, and socioeconomic class. We all need Christ. Amen, church? Man, we sang a song, Break Every Chain, and I was thinking, man, when we were singing, there's an army rising up that's going to break every chain. So we live in a culture that's incredibly disunified. I was like, there's not a news item that doesn't come out, that doesn't immediately become political. And it's just, it's like, it, it breaks my heart. Like, man, we just so disunified. Listen, your hope is not a blue wave or a red wave or a tidal wave. Well, maybe a tidal wave. Let's start over. No, I don't want that, Okay. Our hope is the church. It's why I get so excited. I have no problem sitting over here and going, guys, we need to use our time and our talent and our treasure to, to plant more gospel-centered campuses around the community and around the world, including Ukraine, where we just helped out, including Puerto Rico. So, Because the hope of unity in the world and peace on earth is when every human being goes, I'm the problem, I need saving, there's unity, there's, there's humility, there's love, there's mercy and grace at the foot of the cross, and I therefore extend it to everyone else, amen, because I'm the problem and I need a savior. That is the hope of the world, and it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to bring up the worship team, and then we'll close with prayer. I, uh, you guys know the story of Peter um, in New Testament times. The, the Pharisees taught that if someone wounded you or sinned against you, that you only had to forgive them up to seven times. So it was like a scorecard. Well, there's once. I'd have blown it in my marriage by the end of the day, you know, like it's twice, seven times, you know. And Peter comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, this is my words, you're not going to believe how spiritual I am. I'm willing to forgive 70 times seven. And the thunder just authenticated that, right? Like God's <laughs> behind me now, okay? Set for Jesus, I'm like so spiritual, 490 times. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There was a king, and he decided he wanted to settle debts. He lent out a bunch of money and wanted to settle debts. And so he brings in the first debtor, a guy that owed him $10 million. And he brings him in, and he says, hey, I need to settle my account today. You need to pay me the $10 million. And the guy had, doesn't have it, and he just falls on his knees and he says, man, please forgive me, king. I'll get it. I'll pay it back. There's no way he could pay it back. But he goes, I'll pay it back. And the king says, nope, I'm going to throw you into prison. I'm going to take away your wife and children. And the, and the guy, please, 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 oh king, be merciful. Be merciful to me. 
And so the king says, you know what? I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to be gracious. Your debt is forgiven. Go in peace. So the guy that had been forgiven $10 million, he goes out in the community and he finds a neighbor who owed him five bucks. And he says, do you owe me the five bucks? I need to collect my debt today. And this neighbor says, I, I don't have it today. I promise you I will, I will have it by the end of today. And the, and the servant who had been forgiven $10 million says, nope, I'm dragging you to court. He takes him to court and sends him to prison. He sends his children and family away, separation from his wife and children. And the king gets wind of it, and he brings him back in, and he says, I forgave you a lifetime of wealth that you could never repay, and this is how you treat your fellow servant. He says, you're a wicked slave. You're a wicked servant. There is no place in the church where we are not forgiving and loving and kind to others in our church family. Because the moment that we hold others, we judge others with an impartial judgment, is the moment that we have forgotten how big the debt is that we've had canceled. You ready? This will change your marriage. This will change your marriage. Some of you are holding a ledger sheet, and it's long. It's way past 490 times. This will change your small group. This will change your church. And this will change your community. And so my prayer for Coastal Man is that we are people that say, man, let's look around the room. You're my family. You have a need. I want to try to help meet it. I want to pray for you. We want to lift you. We want to encourage you. By the way, that happens in small groups. If you're not in a small group, you're not going to get it in an auditorium, 900-seat auditorium, Okay got to be in a small group where people can love on you and care for you and take care of you. And it happens all the time in our church. I could give story after story after story. We need to be forgiving of one another. We need to be that army that rises up and says, man, we've been forgiven much, so we are going to forgive much. We're going to be kind. We're going to be gracious. We're going to be merciful. We're going to judge impartially because our king has been so kind and merciful and gracious to us. Amen, church? All right, let's close with prayer. I'm going to invite the prayer team up, worship team out. If you need prayer after the service, this is so awesome. Last service, man, just seeing almost all our prayer team members with people praying with them. So if you're here today, you need some prayer, don't leave without seeing a prayer team member and praying. So here's what I want to do. I want you to think about a person in your life that you have judged partially not been fair in your judgment towards them. There's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. If you've judged someone because of their skin color, it's a partial judgment. Ask God to forgive you for that. Judge someone because of their poverty or wealth. Their gender ask the Lord to forgive you for that and now I want you to take the name of this person into the throne room of God I just want you to pray for them and ask God if they don't know Christ that maybe God in his grace would lead them to know Christ and ask the Lord to be with them and to bless them even Jesus said we are to pray for our enemies
Father, I pray for this church, God, that we would be a people that, man, we judge with a holy, biblical, righteous standard. We give a lot of mercy and a lot of love and a lot of grace. We walk into our church family with a lot of humility, God, knowing that, man, I'm the needy, broken one that needs a Savior. God, that we would be growing in holiness and righteousness. We would be growing loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And God, recognizing at the end of the day, like, we're so sinful, I'm so imperfect that indeed all I genuinely have is Christ. I need you, Christ. We need you, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word, and by the power of community, God. We need you to change us to be more like Jesus be forgiving and to be merciful and quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, God, slow to partial judgments, that this would be indeed a family where there's mercy and grace and love, because all we have is Christ. May he be our all in all, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Let's go out singing and worshiping him this morning. Let's stand and sing.